Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer, author, and software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Complete Developer Podcast. If your application uses a relational database, odds are good that updating the application will require changing the database structure. While tools are available for migrating databases in most frameworks, there is no silver bullet. In this episode, we'll discuss some things that you need to keep in mind when updating database schemas, whether you're doing it manually or using an automating tool. But before we get started, Will, what have you been migrating this week? I actually switched the podcatcher I use. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so there's like 60 podcasts on my list, right? And it was a major undertaking. So I switched from Dogcatcher to Pocket Casts. And what's neat about it is it actually will cut you know, spaces in the audio. You know, it's just like dead space. It'll cut that out. You can speed up the audio. And it gives you a reading of how much of your time it's saved by doing that. And it syncs between my phone and my tablet, which I've never had that before. So I could be listening to it you know, down here and go, okay, I'm going to go to lunch switch over to my phone and I can continue playing in the car. So yeah, it's unbelievable quality of life improvement for me. Cause you know, I've been like, I've been using dog catcher since like 2014 or something. And it was just getting to where like, it didn't sync. It would sometimes not be able to download episodes. It would continually retry to download and then lose the episode it had. It would overwrite stuff. So yeah, that's the main thing I have done and that is a huge life improvement i'm just like super stoked about that so what's going on with you well i don't know if uh if you heard it i don't know if it'll make it into the episode but uh, amanda just called <laughs> didn't hear it okay good good yeah i caught it pretty quickly so there wasn't wasn't much but uh she was like i'm sorry i forgot you're recording <laughs> But uh, she's been checking up on me more than normal this week. Last night, we drove about an hour and a half to Sparta, Tennessee, to attend the funeral for a friend of mine. He uh, passed away last week, and we ended up actually not recording the episode last week because I was just, I was not in good shape to record, and I was already stressed out about school stuff because my paper was due and I had a final, and yeah, it was just an overloaded mess of things. And so we did not record. We're doubling up this week. So uh, we're recording one episode tonight and one episode on Thursday. Not sure which order they're going to come out. So we'll figure that out. Yeah, you're in charge of that one, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, it's not yeah, me. I am. <laughs> I was like, uh, it's either you or it's non deterministic. Yeah, so we'll see which order they come out. But uh, I did get the chance to meet up with some friends I haven't seen in several years. Um, yesterday, well, Sunday, I should say. I saw them yesterday, too, at the funeral. But uh, Sunday, when they flew in to Nashville, they live out in California. So it was good to catch up, uh, though I did learn that the person who I thought was a four is actually a six. And so... 
We'll talk a little bit more about that in a couple of weeks when we discuss the Enneagram type six. But uh, it makes sense given some other parts of his personality. There's just like a few traits that screamed for. And he even admitted, he's like, yeah, that doesn't really match the rest of my personality. I'm like, yeah, I know. That's what made me think that. Of course, I'm going on him from, what, 15 years ago? So that's like when we hung out the most. Well, you had a similar problem even with me because like you get an impression early. Yeah. And, you know, it's hard to remember (laughs) the newer things versus, oh, this is how they are. So I get that. That was interesting. The other thing is, um, found out I'd blocked his number on my phone accidentally. I'm not sure what happened. He messaged me that he had gotten a new phone when, like, they'd been out there for a couple of years. And so he sent me the new number. I have the new number in my phone, but he apparently had been, like, the last couple of years calling and texting i thought he was mad at me and hadn't like reached out to me i was like well i don't want to bother him so i'm not gonna (laughs) oops (laughs) so when we were trying to get together um i got an instagram message from his wife saying hey he called and i think your phone's turned off and uh i was like no so i called him and we were talking about he's like yeah it's like i left you messages and and called and was like i don't have anything and so we're driving. Amanda looks at my phone. She's like, you want me to unblock his number for you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I have no idea what happened. So he showed me when we got to the restaurant that uh, I had like all these messages over the years that I had never received. Yikes. So I have no idea what happened. The only thing I can think is when I get a spam call or something, I will block the number, especially if it's one of those like ones that continues to call back and i think i hit the wrong one and blocked his instead so last night after i got home i went through all the blocked numbers i have and made sure there wasn't anyone that i knew on there (laughs) so like i don't want that to continue to happen in other news i had some uh, non-alcoholic beer uh sunday wasn't that bad Amanda had some actual craft non-alcoholic beer as a sour a few weeks back and told me about it. Uh, this was just you know your standard lager stuff, but I haven't had beer in so long. I was like, uh, oh, it's not bad, you know. And I didn't look like the oddball sitting there with the guys not drinking a beer. You know, pour it into a glass, and nobody knows. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, we uh, we had some non-alcoholic beer while we were hanging out Sunday. That was that was interesting. I went online to see if I could find some like other non-alcoholic stouts and like stuff I like. So I was like, hey, you know, I can drink that while we're recording. And so I went on and I discovered non-alcoholic whiskey. <sighs> Dude. <laughs> No. So, yeah, I got to give it a try. I have to know. I picked the one with the best reviews. Just some things people aren't meant to know, though. <laughs> I feel like that's one of them. Yeah. So we'll see how it goes. I'll uh, I'll let you guys know when it shows up. So Amazon. Woohoo. So also shout out to our new patron, Roman. Just got that notification today 
but uh hey thank you for your support we appreciate that uh all you guys who support us you guys are uh, are what makes the podcast possible so thank you guys all database migrations are a complicated topic while easy solutions exist for simple migrations, trivial implementations can fail spectacularly in a real production environment, especially if you aren't running the migration during a period when no one else is on the system. By the way, if you have a SaaS application, that time period when no one else is on the system doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> just so you know. Or if you're uh, multinational. Yeah. yeah. I'll just put it this way. Like, this was written from recent experiences. <laughs> While we often think about our databases as simply data stores that are owned by our application, you know, in a lot of environments, this is really not true. In addition to our own applications, our databases may be ex- accessed by ETL processes that are loading data, reporting processes that are moving and reshaping data to place into another system, hopefully, for easier reporting, backup processes so that we don't lose everything, auditing processes so that we meet compliance and security requirements, and even other applications. Now, while it is helpful during development to consider that your database is owned by your application, when you're dealing with DevOps and production considerations, uh, you may be better off thinking about it more like a microservice for data storage. Um, Phrased this way, you can make more reasonable decisions about how to alter the database without taking down other parts of the system. Also, you may find that this approach are approaches that were perfectly acceptable when the database was owned by your application are not workable when it's an independent and critical part of a larger system. Now, while the shortest distance between two points may be a straight line, a straight line that causes system disruption is not a path worth walking unless you're trying to disrupt systems. Right. Or <laughs> oil pipelines, for that matter. Uh-huh. Man. Gas pipelines, I should say, but yeah. Whether you're doing automated database migrations or manual ones, there are issues you need to keep in mind when you're planning out just how a migration needs to occur. In particular, you'll find that you're constantly working around things that may impact system uptime, responsiveness, and even possibly cause errors. Furthermore, if you're an application developer who isn't constantly messing around with the database, a lot of the issues that can occur will surprise you. So in this episode, we'll discuss a number of things that you should be thinking about when you are doing database migrations. While we tend to focus on automated migrations, most of these are still very relevant, even with manual migration processes. We'll start off with the absolute basic things you need to have to be able to run migrations with some degree of success, followed by how bad migration processes can burn you in a real database scenario. Moving money can be even more daunting than migrating data. Lucas Casares is a fee-only certified financial planner. He owns and runs Level Up Financial Planning virtually out of Fort Collins, Colorado. Just like us here at CDP, he focuses on helping you not only establish a real plan, but also to take action so that you can implement that plan and live your best life. 
Yeah, investing in financial planning services, it kind of comes down to whether or not you can improve your finances with help. Um, the compounding impact of making better financial decisions will easily pay for itself. And speaking of paying for itself, Level Up has a unique pricing model that will help you no matter where you are in your financial journey. Best of all, Lucas is a fiduciary for his clients. And what that means for you is that he's not here to sell a product to you, but instead to help guide you to a better financial situation. It requires him to act in your best financial interests. And you can find more resources and learn more at levelupfinancialplanning.com. So jumping into the database migrations, the first thing we have is make sure you have a safety net. Or as Will puts it, don't be dumb. Don't do the dumb. (laughs) Don't do the dumb. Yeah, that sounds like what you say. Have your basic requirements for this. Yeah, so if you don't have automated regularly tested backup procedures and a provable ability to restore, you need to handle that first. Like you need to stop migrating and go handle that because you're going to get hurt uh, very quickly. That's like saying, Hey, the power's not off. I feel like I can saw through this electrical wire. It's going to be exciting, but you're probably not going to enjoy it. When is it exciting when you enjoy it? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there's somebody out there that's going to go and you know, take a pair of hedge clippers to electrical wire now because we said that on a podcast. Don't do it. No, nope, don't do it. Trust me from other people's experience. Don't do it. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. Next, you should be testing this stuff in some sort of staging environment. While migrations might run well on a developer machine, you should also make sure they can run from whatever tool is used in your CI pipeline, if you have any, or in a database scripting environment. I mean, we do this actually in multiple environments. So our test environment is supposed to reflect production. It doesn't perfectly reflect production because there's some things we have to do for the QA to get information about the tests and stuff. But um, our UIT environment does. So when we migrate something, and I've, I've seen this, actually helped plan out some of this recently, we'll do it in dev and make sure it works there, where if we have to, we can just blast all the data and go whatever. It doesn't matter. We'll do it in test, where it's annoying for QA. Yeah. <laughs> but it doesn't like cause big issues. Then we'll do it in UAT, where it's annoying for the customer, but it doesn't cause issues. And if all of those succeed, then you do it in production and annoy the customers where it does yeah. cause issues. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is hard to get exactly right, but basically what I'm trying to aim for here is go, Hey, like if your CI pipeline is logging into the database and updating it, make sure that it will work through the CI pipeline. Right. Cause like, if you don't have permissions to do what you're trying to do, it breaks and it may break halfway through the migration when, it's halfway done and the system's in a weird state because you did something dumb with transactions. Not that I've ever done that. Okay. I haven't this year. So, (laughs) um, you know, that's definitely something you have to uh, concern yourself with. Another thing you need to be doing is you need to have some kind of plan for rolling back a migration that you're doing and you need to test it 
like it's a first-class citizen. So test it like the regular migration. If you can't roll back, you probably shouldn't be trying to roll forward. And this includes testing with the app after a rollback. What's great is when somebody goes, oh, I dropped this column and my rollback puts the column back. Okay, but does it put the data back or does the app just die? You would be surprised how often that happens. I have not done that in a few years. (laughs) In a few years. Yeah, well, it's it makes an impression. Oh, yeah. Thankfully, it, yeah. Was, it was in a CI environment <laughs> when I did it. So it was, it was okay-ish, except for the long database restore and everybody making fun of me. Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. Make sure your database migrations are stored in source control so that they can be correlated with the code that requires them. Should you need to roll back to an earlier version or even just look at application history, this is going to be critical. Yeah. So for instance, if your clients, you know, maybe you're not a SaaS app and you actually still distribute your software and your clients on a previous version, well, how are you going to fix that? Well, if you roll back in source control and go, okay, I'm going to get the version from six months ago, but I don't have the database as it was six months ago. Guess what? No, you're not. It's not going to work. So you do want to make sure that you've got that in place just so that things can kind of be sensible. And speaking of sensibility, the first thing that you really need to be careful about is timeouts. When you're doing a database migration, it's very, very easy to get yourself into a situation where whatever's calling it times out when maybe it didn't when you were running it on your desktop for some reason, especially with it just being local. So like, let's say your CI pipeline is running your database migrations. You have to be aware of what kind of timeouts you're going to be dealing with. So like, for instance, I think ours are like 15 minutes and we've got an Azure pipeline set up. And I'm not sure if we specify that or if somebody else does, but if it doesn't run in 15 minutes, like it rolls it back and your deployment will fail. And if you're doing that last minute before a rush of traffic, before a major holiday, that's not the time to find that out. Ah, wow. 15 minutes. That's not a lot of time. We had a deployment that was taking 20 to 30 minutes. Yeah, this is just like a single step in a database migration. Ah, okay. I follow what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Now that makes a lot more sense. A good way to estimate this is to see how long something takes in your staging environment and then compare table row counts to your production environment. Right. And you multiply by the ratio between the two. But bear in mind, I know that like probably the half of our audience that just thought that through cringed because this is not great as a yardstick. This will be your best case scenario. Yeah. Is whatever this is. More than likely, it's going to be an order of magnitude or two worse in (laughs) production because that's what production is, right? That's where good ideas go to die. So understand that and go in there with a little bit of cynicism and you'll feel better when you get out and it wasn't as bad as you thought it was going to be. Also, be aware that your production environment may be under load for various reasons when you run your migration. So its performance may be worse than your staging environment. Maybe its performance will be worse. Well, I said maybe, and the reason I said maybe is some people go really cheap on their staging environments. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's like, oh yeah, this is running like the top level, uh, you know, EC2 instance, you know, that's available and it's crazy fast, crazy fast connection. And the test machine is like a little, basically an e-machine type, if those are even still around, you know, consumer grade piece of crap sitting in a closet with 
Oh, no, no. Come on. If you're going to do a test machine like that, just do a Raspberry Pi. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> that's why I said it might, because there's going to be somebody that, you know, pushes their glasses up on their nose and goes, well, actually, it's like, we're not talking about you, dude. <laughs> yeah. You know, some people like to cut wires with bolt cutters with power on, but that's not most people. Oh, my goodness. Remind me sometime to tell you about getting well actually on a photography forum. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, one other thing, too, here to keep in mind is you need to know how your database will lock rows during updates and inserts and basically any of your data uh, operations. You may have to change the way you do some things, especially if you're doing stuff in a running production environment, just so that your migration script doesn't end up being a deadlock victim. So for instance, if you're updating a huge table, you may not want to do a bulk update on the whole thing. You may want to say, okay, I'm going to create a work table of items and take you know 50 at a time and update them. There are cases where you have to do that, not as much as there used to be, but definitely be aware of that because what happens is you, if you're requesting a lock on something and something else already has that lock and you have a lock on something it needs, you get a deadlock and there's a good chance that your script is going to be the one that gets you know killed. So you do have to kind of be aware of that to try to avoid it. Oh yeah. Just make it so that your script is the thing that always survives and whatever else is running gets killed. That's yeah. But the thing that's running that gets killed may be a customer transaction. That's money. <laughs> I know. That's why I said that because yeah. you don't want to do like, that. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't, you don't want to have a deadlock victim. You know, it's, it's not just like, oh, it's over there because like it's still your problem. So yeah, you have to be careful about that. Also, when you do migrations, try as much as possible to make them happen inside the database. Instead of using some tool that pulls it into your ORM and does the migration in your object model code. I've seen people do a lot of that and it's great at a small scale. You know, you enforce the business rules and all that kind of stuff. But when you do it on a table with a couple million rows in it, you're pulling all that data across the wire. Yep. I've had those conversations not long ago. Uh, <laughs> Me too. And I'm like, I mean, we can do it, but understand this is the consequences of doing that. Yeah. <laughs> it hurts. <laughs> and it doesn't hurt until the person that knows why it hurts gets hurt by it. Because the person that wrote it will not be the one having this problem. Probably. So... Next, watch out for after hours processes. You know, if your migration is particularly intense, your team may opt to schedule it to run after hours or during a period of low activity. Now, while this limits the amount of stuff that can go wrong, it's not pure protection. It, you have to look out for other things. Because there are things that do run after hours. Yeah, it's weird how many organizations, you know, have like run away from batch processing type stuff, they say, and then they have processes after hours that are still batch processes like they used to do on the mainframe. But now they're doing it in the cloud with Lambda functions and callbacks, and it's it's the same issue. You really have to be kind of careful about things like payment processing that runs after hours. For instance, you want to make sure that your migrations are not scheduled during the period when those things run. So like if you don't have a maintenance schedule for production and you don't know what that is, you need to find that out before you try running stuff after hours. No. 
Also, you need to be aware of backups. Uh, Depending on how backups are conducted within your organization, they can result in the database not being available or being under extreme load that's going to cause timeouts or could cause deadlocks. I mean, there's a lot of of different things that could happen if you're not careful about that and depending on, again, how those are set up. Yeah. And don't assume that your DBA is necessarily competent either. Like, oh, my database of choice, you know, handles this cleanly and, you know, I won't have a problem. But yeah, if your database administrator of choice doesn't handle it cleanly and you don't have a problem, you still have a problem. What if you didn't choose your DBA? Yeah. Well, like, you know, for instance, okay, you know, you've got SQL Server, you know, you got whatever the latest is. I can't even remember now. Is it 2020? Anyway, if you got the latest version of SQL Server, but your DBA hasn't learned anything since 1996, you may find some interesting backup techniques being used that will break your stuff. So you got to avoid that. You also need to be really careful about doing large migrations around the first or 15th of the month, around the end of a quarter, or just before the end of the company's fiscal year, or before major holidays or during them, like when the company gets a lot of uh, transactions in. So, for instance, I'm in a nonprofit. There's a lot of money comes in around Easter and uh, Christmas, especially, and a few other times during the year. You try not to do stuff around there because you don't want to break the system. Unless, of course, your downtime is the holidays. Yeah. Depending on your industry, really. I mean, that's that's the thing, because like the holidays may be the time to do it. Just, you know, make sure you schedule it around the other after hours processes. And make sure that you have personnel. (laughs) Yeah. There's nothing like knocking a database offline and not being able to put it back and the DPA being gone on vacation. I haven't done that, but I've had friends that have. It was There's a lot of profanity used for quite an extensive period of time. It was really about a three-minute long run-on sentence, honestly. So don't do that. <laughs> and you also don't want to break something for some executive who's trying to do you know financial reporting because they tend to get mad about that. So next... You want to look for data loss when changing columns. Yeah, so your database migration framework may put a lot of layers of abstraction between you and the database, right? Like that's kind of what an ORM type system is supposed to do. But you need to be really careful about what it does when you change a column in a table. So for instance, if you say, I'm going to rename this column, there are migration frameworks that will say, okay, I'm going to drop the column and re-add it with the new name when you're just changing the name of it and you lose all the data in there. Yep. I know some DBAs that do the same thing. Yeah. That's definitely something to be careful about. Now, wouldn't, like, if it's a migration framework, wouldn't they, like, think, hey, there's data in here that needs to be... Like, I would think if you have to do that, if you have to create a new column, you create the new column, you move the data over, and then you drop the column. Well, and that was actually the next point, right? Like, that's what you should do. Yeah. And that's what I tend to do on any, you know, anytime I'm renaming, um, even if I think that maybe the framework would handle it. The other reason I do that is also stability of the app while this is changing, right? So I'll make the copy with the new data. We roll out the new version of the app, and then I have a migration later to get rid of the old column because the app is still calling the old one. So yeah, I'm a little bit more paranoid. I'm not sure that that's, Um, entirely useful, but it hasn't burned me yet. So um, I'm going to say stick with that. Now, 
it may be wise to keep the old versions of the data around for at least a little while. There's a lot of reasons for that, but um, I archiving for one is definitely very useful. You don't want to just delete it as soon as you migrate it. I've seen this happen where only like one little subset of the data got messed up in the migration. Yeah. Like it was one join table that got messed up and it was only used in a certain scenario. And so it didn't get noticed for a couple of months Uh until they had that particular report come up. And thankfully the DBA was very paranoid. (laughs) Kept everything. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think you're not a really good DBA until you're fairly paranoid anyway. Yeah, that makes sense. I know a few that, yeah. I think it's like being involved in espionage. Like if you're not paranoid, you're not going to be in the job long. For one reason or the other. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you might also have to do some things when you're dealing with changing columns. So you may want to do things like disabling triggers. I mean, if your database has them for some reason. You may want to do some stuff about indexes because, you know, that may slow down the operation of changing stuff. You may just want to go, hey, I'm dropping this index, doing this bulk update, and then I'm going to rebuild the index. Especially if you've got a lot of processing happening in the middle. You might also get rid of constraints because you change data. And, you know, like for instance, okay, I don't want to allow this column to have nulls. But in some cases, I don't have a field value to put in there. And I've got to derive it from some other place on the subset of the records. I may want to put most of them in, go get the other stuff, put those in, then put the constraint back on. Can we just talk for a moment about uh, DBAs who are like, when you're in development, oh, that constraint is causing a problem. Let me just go into the database and remove it. You're like, no, the constraint is telling me about a problem with my code. I need it there. (laughs) I had a DBA that just was like, just had this attitude of, oh, the constraint's causing the problem. I'll go remove it. And I'm like, no, the constraint told me about the problem. That's like, like deleting a unit test. Uh-huh. <laughs> Actually, it, I guess it's deleting an integration test. Sort of. Yeah. That DBA had kind of been burned by developers who... They all have. Yeah. <laughs> That's why they... Like, bear in mind, they are that way with you because they were somebody like you in the past that they encountered. And they weren't as paranoid. Um, Always give them the benefit of the doubt. So another thing you need to be careful about is index rebuilds. So if you're changing the database schema during a migration, which is kind of typical, you may also be updating a lot of data. So you'll get index-related issues periodically when you're doing this stuff. For instance, if you change millions of rows in a heavily indexed table, it can take a lot of server resources to update all those indices because it's having to rebuild a bunch of stuff, potentially restructuring the index, you know, moving a lot of stuff around on disk and in memory. And it can be very, very impressive what that does as you get a large table. Uh, Also remember that unless you are operating during an outage window, maybe even then that your migration process is probably not the only user of the server. Depending on who the other users are, it may be really important to avoid causing too much of a performance issue. 
Yeah. So like your most powerful client is trying to get data out of the system and you bring it to a crawl, you know, during a maintenance window, you just want to be careful about that because, you know, like when they say it's a maintenance window, understand that, you know, windows are on a house and when one window is closed, that doesn't imply that all of them are. And when they say maintenance window, they're not saying maintenance windows. That's the way to think about that. You might. Sometimes um, I wish they would do some maintenance on windows. Well, they, they do all the time. <laughs> and it's an outage window for your personal machine, whether you want one or not. <laughs> couldn't help it. I could not uh-huh. help that. Uh-huh. <laughs> you also have to be careful about how you drop and create uh, indexes during a migration. Yeah, for instance, if you're simply adding a field to an index, you might be better off creating a brand new index with the old fields and the new one instead of dropping and creating the existing one. Then you can delete the old one later. We've kind of talked about a similar concept. Yeah, because bear in mind that an app may be using that and may be relying on you know fairly quick performance and all of a sudden you kill the way it looks stuff up. Yeah. That's one of those not cool type of things that you don't want to do to yourself. Also, if you do a whole lot of crap to the system just in general, but especially with uh, indexes, you may want to run a command to rebuild index statistics on the relevant tables. If you've done something that might, you know, impact one of them in a large way. So you've churned a bunch of data because your database system may or may not be updating those as you go. A lot of times that happens kind of in a batch type way, and you don't want that to still be busted in the morning. So next, you need to coordinate with application deployments. When you have an application running in production that is dependent on the old version of a table, you need to be careful about how you update to the new version. You may need to break the migration into multiple stages. We're doing something similar to this with the the new system that I'm building at work where it's replacing kind of an older jankier system that was built for one specific purpose and management at the time was like, "Oh hey, we have something that kind of does that, so why don't you use it for this and then use it for that and then use it for that." And it just sort of was never planned and it was built by a junior developer as their first project. So it's a plastic Swiss army knife is what you're saying. Yeah, basically like it, and you know, for honestly it held up pretty well for, for all those things against it. But we built this new one and now we're going through and connecting the existing applications. And we kind of built it to be backward compatible so that it would be easy to connect them and then go into like point them to it and just be like, hey, use this one instead of that one. All the same stuff's there. Just use this one instead and then go in and change them one by one to use the newer stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of like the whole column rename issue that we talked about. Yeah. A little bit earlier, right? Like, yes, I want to rename the column, but understand that if the app is still running, it still needs the old column and you're probably deploying the database update before you deploy the app. So you're going to have to stage, you're going to have to break that uh, database migration into two pieces so that you don't break the app during the migration. And by the way, crap will break all the time when you're migrating anyway. It's like working on a car engine while it's running. 
you're going to get some soot on your face at a minimum. Just going to happen. But, you know, don't do dumb things that make it worse. It's like the retired proctologist who went and took a course on um, building cars, like maintenance and building car engines. Went to a college for it. Final exam. Had to rebuild the car. So he does it and goes to Professor, how'd I do? Professor says, Oh, it's fascinating, but I've never seen anyone rebuild a car through the tailpipe while it was running. (laughs) (laughs) And then he, of course, he went to a coding school after that and he learned how to build stuff with the HTML canvas. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I went there. Deal with it. (laughs) All righty then. Yeah, you, you may also, by the way, run into a situation where you have multiple versions of the app that are running concurrently because you may be staging the update to the app too. Like you've got a load balancer and you're waiting for the old connections to kind of go away before everything switches to the new one. And so bear in mind, it's not just, okay, I, I can you know create the new column and roll the app out and then delete the old one. It may be several hours in there potentially. And it gets even more weird when you got cash and other crap in the mix. So just understand that you're going to have to coordinate this with the deployment of the app. So next, try to have a fast rollback uh, instead of recovering from a backup. You know, if you completely screw up a migration, it's going to happen. You might be tempted to just blow it away and simply restore the database. You can get away with this on a small system, like say a development environment, you know, where you've got all the permissions you need, the database is small, you know, it's in megabytes of size. When you do this on a three quarters of a terabyte production database that you're having to restore and possibly restore over a wire, that's a lot of downtime. And if you weren't expecting it, that's really not a good place to be. So you're generally better off making sure that you can actually roll back. That's why I said test your rollbacks because your next rollback is a database restore and loss of revenue and all kinds of people asking questions. Also, database restores can be extremely slow and the application may not be able to do anything while they're running. Yeah, it's basically unscheduled downtime for the application and can be really annoying to your users who are your customers, which translates to lots of angry phone calls, which translates to an angry boss. And I mean, we don't want angry bosses, right? We want them to forget we're there. (laughs) We're trying to be DBAs for crying out loud. Most database migration frameworks, at least since the days of Ruby on Rails, have two sections. Uh, One section is for the up migration, which moves up inversion adds the changes and the other is for the down migration, which rolls back to a previous version. Yeah. Both should get equal attention during testing so that you can rely on the down migration. If you mess things up. Yeah. When, um, yeah, it should be when that's true. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, the, that's the correct word. It's not really conditional. This also means that the up, migration should probably never destroy anything that you expect to restore with a down migration. It's not just, hey, don't destroy data in the up that you want to restore in the down. It may be, hey, don't destroy data in the up that you don't want to destroy in the last several downs. Because again, you may be doing staged stuff. Yeah, you basically need to keep your data until it's no longer needed. 
and then have a separate migration that removes that data. You also need to pay attention to triggers. So like indexes, triggers can also cause you a lot of problems during migration. Not only can they place extra load on the system, but they can even fail, especially if your update is something they weren't written to expect. You know, for various reasons that happens because people put logic and triggers sometimes that maybe shouldn't be there. If you're on an older system, it's almost certain that you're doing something to the database that the trigger doesn't expect. Like SQL Server is a great example of that. You'll have people that write a trigger that expects a single row to be updated when an update occurs, and it doesn't handle multiple rows because the person writing the trigger doesn't understand that. Like That's very, very common. If you're touching a field, you need to go look and say, okay, does this have any triggers on it? Don't assume because it may just be in production that somebody put a trigger there. It's true. Yeah. Ask how I know that. I was like, which can be very annoying because I've seen that happen where you've heard about it happening. I sent you a message when it did. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I've, I've had it happen to me too, but it wasn't as bad as what happened to you. Uh-huh. It was just a more of an annoyance. But you might want to disable triggers during some updates if they are used for audit trails. Yeah. You may not be you able may to. not be able to. Yeah. These triggers may end up generating a lot of noise and or errors. Uh, this can be even more interesting if the triggers are used to fire off other business logic. Like cramming stuff in a table that some other job is going to pick up and it's going to put it in the reporting database and heuristics are going to be applied and then it's going to call, you know, put something in another table that a process picks up and puts into a Lambda and then calls back through your web interface and comes back in. Sounds like you got a lot of business logic there in your database. I've seen some things, man. <laughs> Yeah, so just telling you, trigger warnings are seriously important. You also want to make sure that any triggers that exist in production have their counterparts in your staging environment because your staging environment should be a reasonable facsimile of the production environment to the degree that's possible. And it is possible to get this right. And that's mainly so that you don't get you know nailed in production with something that was not in your staging environment. So definitely double check that. If you're touching a table that a trigger is on, you need to know why they're there and what's downstream of them. So if they have some other effect on the system, find out what that is and why that's in place so that when something breaks. Yeah, you'll also need to include those things in your testing plan. Yeah, which you should actually have one of those. They're nice. They keep you from getting fired. Next. Monitor performance after the update. After a migration, whether it's successful or you had to roll back, make sure that you are adequately monitoring the database for errors and performance issues. While you might not think that you did something that damaged performance, even a fairly simple change can cause massive issues. For instance, if you change the size of a column that happened to be used in an index, at the very least, you may need to update the index statistics and you may actually need to drop and rebuild the index in some cases. One thing I've seen on this is where somebody has a fixed width field, like, you know, it's like five characters and it's always five characters and they change it to be a var care. That doesn't sound like a real big issue, but what it does in the index, if it's included, makes the index less efficient in a lot of cases, right? Because you want narrow, fixed width, low churn, 
stuff for indexes typically. And that just probably busted one, one or more of those. And I'm being very specific on that because I've encountered that one fairly recently. That sounds like something that someone who is not familiar with database structure and usage would do. Because honestly, it sounds like something I would have done earlier on in my career without even knowing it. Well, there's also kind of a cargo cult thing with indexes I've noticed. Like they're like, okay, if I search on this field, let me put an index on it. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, if I'm searching on this field, I may be searching on two or three fields consistently. I don't want three separate indexes. I probably want one index for that set of things because it makes it quicker to drill down. But you know, an index construction is a whole other topic that we need to get into someday, but not today. But you'll see that kind of stuff a lot where you know people just don't think about it, especially if their app doesn't deal with the creation of the indexes in the migration. Yeah. Now, if you've added or altered large amounts of data, or if the application changed its access patterns as part of an update, you may need to delete or update the existing indexes or maybe even add new ones. Yeah, so like you migrate something in the database, you also push an update to the app. When the database suddenly gets slow, your migration gets blamed and the structure of the app changing does not. And that may not be what happens. This is one of the reasons I say to monitor this is because it'll cure a lot of ills. Now, you can try to avoid as much of this as possible through performance testing and monitoring in your staging environment. However, these situations are complex enough that some things are going to slip through to production more than likely, unless you're willing to spend an unbelievable amount of time and money. And since you can't perfectly mitigate these things in a technological sense, you should mitigate them in a political sense by detecting them and fixing them before they become a problem. So the last thing we have for you is to do bulk data operations out of band if needed. Now, while you can do a lot of bulk operations inside of a database migration, you may not want to do so in some cases. For instance, if you are transforming a lot of data and projecting it into a new table structure with an expensive transformation, you may want to do it in a delayed manner. Yeah. So uh, yeah, a great example of this is anything that's involving large text fields, right? Like I've got a field that's got, I don't know, blog posts in it. And I have a set of tags and I want to extract those tags from the field. And I'm doing this in SQL because I'm insane. And you're doing it as part of a, a migration. You may want to actually say, okay, add a column that indicates whether this has been migrated to the new thing. and don't do it in a migration, do it with some other process that can just run outside of the timeouts and other stuff and can handle errors a little bit better. Probably don't do it in SQL, you know, at that point either like text manipulation, you know, heavy text manipulation in SQL is not fun, especially when you start doing regexes and it's not great. So you'll definitely find opportunities to do stuff like that out of band. You may also need to do this if the bulk data update requires information from outside the database. So if it's making a call out to a web server, then you're going to have to do that anyway. Unless you want to make all the calls to the web server, store the data in the database, and then run the migration. But that's kind of awful too. So a lot of times you're going to see this kind of pattern where you don't do the updates right away. And it may be something as simple as setting up a job that runs 
later and gets you know some subset and just moves one percent of the table overnight for the next hundred days. So a good example of this might be a case where your database contains references to URLs for some reason, like user avatars, for example. And you are moving the whole set of records over to a completely different cloud provider. While a bulk update might work, provided that it's quick enough, you may want to schedule a job to do it out of band so that you can move things in smaller batches. Well, and you may want to do that as well because you're testing. You got like half your user base or a quarter of it, and you're testing this on them and you don't want to do it to everybody just yet. There's a lot of opportunity here to not screw things up with migrations if you don't do stuff in a migration that you shouldn't do in a migration. This can also be really useful in cases where you need to load a lot of data from files. So like your ETL type processes probably do not belong in a migration, right? Like that needs to be some other separate thing that's managed differently. Like think about a migration as a change to the database that happens during a deployment, during a CI pipeline, those kind of things. This is an operational change that that needs to be going on, not in a constrained fashion. Because your CI pipeline, like you're kind of limited on how you recover from errors and how you authenticate and you know how you manage memory and all those kind of things. So if you do it outside of there, you will be better off in a lot of cases. Database migrations are a fact of life in modern development environments. While modern tools have made them easier, mostly, there are still things that can cause you problems. However, if you're prepared for the kind of things that might go wrong during a production migration, you can often avoid them. It's not that database stuff is really all that difficult. It's that we often don't think about it very much when we're building apps or we don't want to because we're trying to iterate quickly and we know we can deal with that later. It's pretty common there. But if you're careful about these things, you can greatly reduce the risks of taking code to production, which means that you can do it more often on smaller, less risky updates. And guys, if you like this content and you want some more awesome stuff, we have an aftercast that you can get through Patreon. Definitely go check that out. Yeah, this week we're talking about uh, best practices having to do with migrations. So that pretty much wraps us up, Beej. What do you have this week for us for Tricks of the Trade? So guys, we all need help when we're coding from time to time. Um, You know, help on a project, especially like when this is the first time or when you're doing something new. The thing about that is it's okay to ask for help. You just need to be respectful of the time you take from your coworkers, even from your leads when asking for help. Recently, I've been working with a fellow developer who I helped with one or two things, ended up eating up most of a day, helping him out with some stuff. And now it's like he forgot how to code. Every little thing is, I need help with this. I don't understand this. And even after I've said, hey, I don't know. I didn't write that. I've never looked at that code. Here's the person who did. You can go ask them your questions. I don't know. I can't help you because I've never seen it. I don't know anything about it. And the errors you're showing me don't make any sense to me because that's not my style. That's not how I'm going to give you an error message in my code. So I don't know 
what's going on with it, why you're having that problem. And it kept going until I finally had to say, hey, I have my own work. I'm a day behind because of helping out last week. I have to go get my own stuff done. For me, that's really hard to do because I'm a two. I want to be a helper. I want to be that person that is like, yeah, I got all the answers. I can help you out. I'm right here for you, buddy. Because we are friends and I want to be there for him. But I'm also like, I have to get my work done and I'm not being able to do that because of this. And yeah, I reached out to to a friend of mine. I'm like, hey, I don't know how to handle this situation. And he's like, set boundaries and be firm. I'm like, I know that. <laughs> I'm still having these issues. And so I just want to say to you guys, don't be like that. Because I know this person, he's a great developer and he's just going through some stressful times. And it was like, I don't even think he realizes he's being this way because that's sort of the, that happens. And so I want to encourage you guys to be cognizant of that. Be cognizant that the people you're asking for help, they do have their own work to get done and they're taking time away from that to help you. So don't ask them to do things that you can do or to tell you where something is located when you haven't even looked in the code for it yourself or or really put in that effort because they're going to know and that's going to make them less likely to help you in the future. Instead, what you want to do is come to them prepared. When Will was training me, if I had a problem, he would literally ask, all right, what have you tried? What were the results? So, you know, come with a list of here's what I've tried. Here's the results of that. Here's the error messages that I got. And here's what I found on Google or Stack Overflow when I looked them up. You know, or let's say if you're not familiar with a tool or technology that you're using, look up a tutorial on how to use it before saying, oh, I can't do that or expecting someone else to figure it out for you. Basically, what I'm getting at here, guys, is take responsibility for yourself and for the tasks that you're assigned. If it is legitimately outside of your ability, this is one, an opportunity for you to step up your own abilities. But if it's that far away, say something when the task is assigned and say, hey, I don't know that I can do that. And when you do ask for help, be respectful of the time of those who are helping you and only seek help when you've exhausted all avenues on your own. And you're like, all right, I'm I'm lost. Like, there are times where I'll go to Will for help. And I'm like, all right, look, I have done all of this. I cannot find any information on it. And no joke, he has told me one phrase to Google and I found all the information I needed. I just didn't know the technology was early on. I didn't know the technology well enough to know what to look for. But when that happened, I didn't ask him to tell me stuff. I went out and looked it up. And that's the thing. That's what I'm encouraging you guys to do is to go out and like do the work yourself when you do need help that like when you're stuck after doing all that, then go back and ask for help. That's pretty much all I've got. Stand by for Titanfall. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. 
For references, show notes, and extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Help us make the show possible by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash completedeveloperpodcast. You'll get extras, including a weekly aftercast where we discuss the topic of the week and bonus material with some of our patrons. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod, like our page on Facebook, and follow us on Instagram to keep up with news about the show. Join the conversation anytime via Slack by signing up at slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.